If you want to be traditionally published, you need to attract an agent and a publisher. Now, to get an agent and a publisher, you need an amazing book proposal. So for an author, a book proposal is like a business plan and a resume all in one. Communicates all the important information about you, your book, your platform, and more. And if your proposal is weak, it often ends the conversation torpedoing any chance to fix it or to clarify. And let me tell you, as a literary agent, I got a steady stream of book proposals in my inbox. Every day I had new book proposals, and most of them were, let's just say, not great. I had a steady stock of rejections, and I'd often glance at the book proposal and then send one of those stock rejections. So how do you not get one of those stock rejections? How do you get an agent or a publisher interested in your book proposal? How do you stand out from the competition? Well, that is what we're going to talk about in this episode of the Christian Publishing Show, the podcast for writers who want to honor God with their writing. And we have a great guest today who's going to help us put together amazing book proposals. She's a writing coach, an author, a speaker, and a podcast host of the popular Ann Croker Writing Coach podcast. Ann Croker, welcome to the Christian Publishing Show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So it's 2022. Do authors really still need book proposals? Isn't isn't that an artifact of an older time? Oh, how I wish it were true and it would be some sped up process and you just click a button and you're in. No, you still need to put together this document. And actually, it will help not just the decision maker, but it will help the author as well. So it's an advantage to create a book proposal. Even if you plan to go indie, the act of putting together a book proposal is really beneficial. And this really came home to me because when I was first working on my very first book proposal, I was a college student. And at that exact same semester, I was taking entrepreneurship at the college course. And our big end of the semester project was to put together a business plan. So I'm working on a book proposal in my free time and I'm building a business plan for school. And I'm realizing, oh, my goodness, these are almost identical. (laughs) A book proposal is effectively a business plan minus the budget plus sample chapters. Almost every other section lines up. And Even if you're not seeking funding for your business, putting together a business plan, the the act of planning is really valuable because it forces you to ask yourself tough questions and to solve problems before they become problems. Yes, it's so clarifying. It clarifies the content. It brings to light some of the things that would be otherwise unexpected later, like the fact that you're going to have to market this book. You're going to have to join with the publisher to market this book. So you're going to need a marketing plan. And that sounds so businessy. And a lot of creative people do not want to think about that. They just want to do the creative work. They just want to enjoy the creative process. And the book proposal reminds them, you know what, it's going to be a partnership with first the agent, who then will help you create the partnership with the publisher. And that partnership means you have to bring something to this partnership. You have to have something you're bringing, not just the idea. has to be more than that. has to be the idea and great writing and a marketing plan and a platform that proves that you can get it in front of those future readers. Yeah, that was one of the things as an agent, I would often go to the marketing plan slash platform section first. And this is one of the things I would look for is, the tense of the section, right? Because a lot of people, instead of describing their platform, they would describe this pie in the sky, all the things they want to do in the future. It was like, show me what you've done in the past, right? Show me the successes that you have. Show me that you have competence in doing this. Not that you're like, oh yeah, I'm going to be on Focus on the Family. It's like, okay, everyone wants to be interviewed by Focus on the Family. But it's a very different saying, oh, I'd be happy to do an interview with Focus on the Family compared to 
focus on the family had me on last December and they're scheduled to have me on again next year, right? That's platform as opposed to a marketing plan is I'm going to pitch focus on the family to have me on their show. Yes, yes. And that's actually a subtle distinction because I think some of the platform things we do now can become marketing efforts later. And there's sometimes some confusion when I'm working with clients on this. But eventually they start to see how it all works out because they start usually ramping up their efforts, their platform building efforts. And then they're starting to see, oh, I see how this same kind of task or activity could also be used when it comes time to market the book. So yeah, that's uh, an important part of the conversation. And you know what, you just said something that fascinates me. I have started to see the agents or whoever the decision maker is, they all go to a different place first. Yeah, They, they all go through the material of the proposal in a different order. It's so interesting to me. Typically, the agent will go to the section that's closest to their core set of expertise first, because that's where it often becomes the easiest to judge. And then the other sections become tiebreakers. So for me, obviously, I came from a marketing background. So I went to the marketing section first. And I would work with my clients to break it into two, just like what you're talking about. There's the platform section, and I'd have them separate that from the marketing plan section. Here's the how we're going to launch the book, because that is important. But that doesn't replace doing the work to build the email list, right? Like, oh, here's our email plan for emailing list. And Here's how many subscribers we have on our email list. Those go in two different sections. Yes. So what do you look at next? After you look at the marketing plan, what's your second place to go? So often the website, actually. Oh, you're like out of the proposal. You're over. (laughs) Yeah, I pop out of the, I would look at their website to see if they're blowing smoke or not. Because I knew how to tell if a website was popular. I I knew how to pull the Alexa score to see if the website was getting any visitors. And I would be able to tell if they knew what they were doing. And again, to my experience... I used to build websites for authors, and so I could tell a lot about an author very quickly if their website was optimized, and I knew how to work through the smoke. Most agents, I think, are bamboozled by beautiful websites because they don't know how to tell how popular a website is, how much, how search optimized it is, how much traffic it's getting. They just look at how beautiful it was, and I wouldn't actually look at that. I would look at, is this website connecting with readers or not? And so that would be the next thing I would look at. That is so enlightening. If you're listening to this, take note. You need to make sure you have all your infrastructure in place before you pitch that project and create the proposal because they're going to look. They're going to look to see how many followers do you really have? What does your website really do? That's so interesting. Thanks for sharing that. I don't think that's common. I don't think most agents go to the website so quickly. But I don't know. These days, you send them an email, right? You have your website underneath your name. Sometimes they'll click to go to the website first before they even open up the proposal. Back to proposals, though, we should probably talk about how fiction proposals and nonfiction proposals are different. As a novelist, and I'm sure people know this already from listening to your show, they do need to write the book. It needs to be complete. It needs to be polished. They need to have a synopsis, which is really challenging to write sometimes for some people. They need to have that hook that's written tight and alluring so that they can capture the attention when they are querying. And then when they get asked for a partial then they need to be able to produce the partial. That's why the book has to be done. And then they might get asked for a full, and then eventually they need to have the proposal. And you see how it's like the third or fourth thing that you're doing to get in front of people. Whereas with a nonfiction book proposal, you don't actually have to write the book completely first. In fact, it's recommended that you don't because it may evolve. The agent will be like, oh, this is a really great idea, but I looked at your table of contents. I think if you tweak these chapters just a little bit, I know such and such publishers looking for a book on 
this topic and you'll fit in and there's a negotiation over what's in the book. Whereas for a novel, it's like, this is my story, take it or leave it. <laughs> but you need to demonstrate, especially if you're a first time novelist, that you know how to stick the landing and that you know how to finish the book. And so you need to demonstrate that you have the discipline and the hustle to write a complete book. And if you haven't finished your novel, you really have to work on that before you start pitching publishers. Whereas for nonfiction, it's more about building your platform and building your connection with your audience and building your authority and your credibility. And the book is a capstone on that work. And so it's a very different process. It is. And you're still going to have to turn in sample chapters. There's some disagreement on how many you'll be requested to include, but that is part of the book proposal. And that is how you're going to prove that you can really explain this in a way that is compelling. And some of that evidence will be throughout the book proposal, even those more businessy sounding elements. You can insert your own voice into that to some extent. But the chapters are where your writing will really shine. And that's where you're going to be able to answer some of those questions that are on the minds of every agent, which is why this book? Why now? And why this author? Why this book? That's your premise, your big idea. Why now? Is it marketable? Is it saleable in today's world and climate? And then why this author? And that's where, like you said, platform comes into play. Can I get this book in front of people? Are they already interested in the topic based on things I'm already saying and writing in the world? And then the writing abilities already being honed out there too. So it's platform, it's voice, it's your experience and expertise and training. It's all those things. There's a lot happening when they ask, why this author? When it comes to why now, one of the things I would encourage you to put in if you're writing fiction is talk about video games and movies that have similar themes or similar settings or similar tropes to the book that you're writing. Because trends come from anywhere. Sometimes trends in books become trends in movies later, but often it's the other way around. And video games are often on the cutting edge. And sometimes the things are happening in video games first, and then they make it into movies and TV shows and novels later. Depending on your target audience, right? And Amish didn't come out of video games. <laughs> but knowing what's hot is really important because publishers are trying to chase trends. They're not wanting to write a book that was popular 20 years ago. If your related books are all books from back in the day, that's a concern because they're like, well, gosh, you know, those books aren't selling well now. Yeah, we're hearing that you need to try to find them within the most recent two to three years, if you can, which is really challenging, especially if your topic might have an evergreen book that's continuing to sell well, and yours is, has some similarities. Okay, maybe put that in there, but don't let that be the only books that you include in your comps, which is a section of a book proposal is the comps. And that's where your comparable books, sometimes they'll say competitive books, sometimes they'll say complementary books, but it basically it's comparable books to yours. And you're trying to indicate how yours is similar, but different. And you also want it to be really Decent enough to show that it is selling, just like you said. That's good. Yeah. And if you're having a hard time with the comparable books section, this is actually a red flag that you're not reading enough. If you want to be an author, you need to be a reader and you need to be reading in your genre. Don't be that author's like, oh, I'm not going to read in my genre because I don't want to borrow ideas from anyone else. It's like that is the one way to guarantee you will accidentally steal somebody's idea because. More than one people have the same idea at the same time. <laughs> In fact, that's very common. If you're going to be similar to something else, you need to do it on purpose and not by accident, which means you need to be reading the books in your genre. Absolutely. And I would say a couple of things with that is take good notes while you're doing it because you may want to actually use a, a little 
quote to support something that you're saying. And that brings them into your conversation and kind of pulls you into their conversation. So that in other words, you are adding to this chorus of voices. And I had a client years ago suggest, are we all part of a choir and we're all adding our music to it so that we're harmonizing together. And when you get that visual in your head, then sometimes this idea of comps, the competitive idea goes away and you talk about complementary books and how I mine is similar in these ways, but different in these ways. And the only way you're going to know that is if you read the books and you take those good notes, you're not going to be accidentally plagiarizing because you've taken good notes of the pieces that are sticking in your brain so that you won't accidentally use the same verbiage over here in your own project. So you will give attribution and citations. And also, don't see these similar books necessarily as your enemies. Right? The closest competitor to my book had a relationship with the author of that book. I'd had her on my radio show. We, she emailed me after my blog post that had turned into the book went viral and we exchanged some emails. I reached out to her and was like, would you like to write the foreword for my book? And she did, <laughs> right? So she's not a competitor, right? And every single copy of my book has her name and her book right there on the front. When you go to my book on Amazon, you can click on Deborah Folletta and you can see her book. That's very similar because we saw it as we were on a team against this bad idea that we're trying to debunk. It's not like, oh, if somebody buys my book, they're not going to buy her book because they were different. Going back to what you're saying, you know, why this book? The book's got to be different from the other books that are out there, right? You have to add something to the conversation. If you're just rehashing what's already been said, then there's not a compelling reason for your book to exist. Your book has to have a reason to exist. It has to have a reason to exist now. And you need to be the right person to write it. I love your three things. Why this book? Why now? Why this author? And if you're taking notes, write those down and you have to have compelling answers for each one of those. Right. And you're adding again to that chorus of voices, you're adding the harmony. You're not just singing the same note that somebody else is singing. And this is also true in fiction. Readers of fiction read more than one author and they read more than one book. They're hungry for it. Let's say the the universe of Amish books is only three authors, right? And two of those authors are friends and they're recommending each other's books and they're blurbing each other's books. And the other author standing aside, like, I'm not going to interact with them. They're my enemy. Who do you think is going to sell more books, right? The two who are working together (laughs) and the, the two who are sending their fans to each other's books. Our real competition is Netflix. It's not other authors, right? The more people read, the more people want to read. Yes. And I would say just in light of what you said about we go to conferences and we want to get to know people like go follow them on social media, send them an email, say thank you. It's a great book. You can actually start having these conversations and building relationships and making it a non threatening and potentially uh, advantageous future by setting the, the pace early on to say, look, I'm not trying to get in your turf. I'm trying to add to the conversation with you. Thank you for writing this great book. There are other elements of the book proposal. So let's go through them really quick. And obviously, there's different ways of structuring a book proposal and different ways of ordering these. So this is not the canonical way. Some agents will have their own guide. And so if you really want that agent, use that agent's guide. (laughs) It will help. Which they can go to their agency website and sometimes there'll be a template they offer. Sometimes, not always. That's right. And so sometimes you're like, I don't care what agent I have. But sometimes you're like, I really want Steve Lobby. Well, guess what? Steve Lobby has a guide on his website and a course that's $10 on Christian Writer's Market Guide that he made. Maybe, or maybe it's $15. I don't know. Uh, This episode is not sponsored by him, but 
that 10 or $15 might be really beneficial, right? Tweak it to be in line with what he's saying. <laughs> That's money well spent. Right, right. That's a There's a principle there. Like you say, it's not just about this one agent, but it's also about look around. How do you want to connect with that person and learn from them and use their resources? And they're like, I recognize that name. <laughs> That's right. Okay. So, but for most book proposal templates, the first part is the hook or the kind of a real quick pitch. So what is the hook and how do we make it pop? Okay, so I'm going to back up and say, you know what? The very first hook is going to be at that working title and subtitle that you have on that cover page. It's the first way you're going to hook any reader, the, the reader reader who's going to pull it off the shelf in, in a couple of years, or this first person who has to make a decision. You have to intrigue at least a little bit and give them a sense of what this book is going to be about. You hint at the premise and the promise in the title and subtitle. But Anne, somebody told me that the publisher is just going to change the title anyway. Do I really need a good title on that page? Yes, you do. <laughs> and then I always recommend that you have a section where you have alternate titles so you don't sound like a diva that's stuck on your one title, even if you love it. So if you have a couple of other really great ideas, put those in an alternate titles uh, that you just have thought of. And that would be the title and subtitle combination as alternatives. I will say I did this a lot. I would go to their alternate titles and be like, Man, title number three, you're burying the lead. This is your magic title. Let's swap that out. We're publishing to be way more interested in that. And it gives the publisher and the agent something to work with. They're like, man, I really like your idea. But coming up with a good title for a book is a trick. Like, it's work. And there's a reason why your title may not be picked. But it's still, picking one that's close will get you a lot closer than one that's totally off the mark. And it's a reason to have somebody review your proposal, too. Like in your case, you as an agent were able to see that. And it's so hard to be objective about your own ideas, especially when you love your title. So in the end, you're going to have a book cover, but it's going to have a title on it. And so that's your first hook. But then you come to the hook. And I have come to change my mind about how I view the hook. And I'm now taking Rob Eager's approach where I'm recommending if you can do a what if style hook for fiction or nonfiction, and you can go just like search Rob Eager hook and you'll find his article about it. And he also has a book about it, book hooks. And his idea being you frame it more like a question that's becoming like, wow, what if I could in four easy steps reduce screen time for my kids in one month or less? So like you're implying a lot of what's going to be in the book in a what if framing. But then what I normally or in the past had called a hook with an alternative possibility of calling it like a one sentence summary was this statement about what this book is in just as succinct form as possible. And Ryan Holiday says you need to do a one sentence, a one paragraph, and then a one page explanation of your project or your book. And that goes for fiction or nonfiction. And that's really what we're talking about. This one sentence, what's your one sentence succinct explanation? If you can't do that, you don't know what your book is about. And they're going to read that before they read the proposal. We perhaps should have started here, but each agent wants you to send the proposal in a different way. But most are like, email it to this address. So you send the proposal and you attach it if they want it attached. But often you put something in the email, right? The email has a subject line and the email has a, a paragraph or two where you're basically selling, hey, agent who's really busy, you got 50 proposals today. Here's why you should spend five minutes looking at mine. And that's where that hook comes in, right? If you have a really good sentence or a really good paragraph, 
that explains the book and makes them curious. Doesn't tell them everything, right? But it's got to get them curious. I'm like, ooh, what's this? And then they download the PDF. We call it a hook for a reason, right? We want to hook them. We want them to like, ooh, I want more. And that's that part of that standing out. We talked about a standout book that's going to stand out from the others on the stack or on the digital file. That's what the hook is doing. You're presenting your premise and your promise packed into that with an implication of who the audience is all in one. That one sentence is doing a lot of heavy lifting for the whole project, and it's really hard to get to that. I do have a simple template. I actually have a free course or challenge. It's called Craft Your Book's Big Idea. The template is very simple. It's not rocket science. Other people use it for courses and other things that you're trying to sell. So here it is. This book helps blank. Learn how to blank so they can blank. Okay, so you're filling in all these blanks. It's like a little template. And this is just to get you started. You're not going to just immediately copy paste this into your proposal, but just get to get you thinking. So this book that will be replaced with a title, so a compelling title will insert there where this book is. But this book helps who you're trying to figure out who your audience is. And you need to narrow this down so you're really clear on it so that you know you're not trying to reach every person who might possibly be in the universe. You need to be more honed in. Then learn how to, and this could be something they're going to learn how to think differently about or do. Like you might actually empower them with some how-to tips or something. They're going to learn something. So at the end of the book, that's the promise, right? They're going to learn. By the end of this book, they're going to have skills or knowledge so they can and then what's the benefit? What's the value? What's How is their life going to be different and better because they did all this? And if you want to go like next level it, then you can play around with adding by and then a blank line. By meaning how are how am I going to do this? So like this book helps parents of elementary school kids learn how to limit screen time for themselves and their family so they can enjoy living out the values that they cherish and have a closer relationship with each other and with the Lord. Then if you want to add the by, they would say by implementing a four-step framework or process of weaning themselves from this and reorienting to a different path. I don't know, that's really bad on the by, but that would represent. Yeah, the the by shows that you have specific help and not just like general guilt, right? Because like, (laughs) I know I need to to do less screen time, right? And I get the report from Apple every Sunday that says how many hours <laughs> I spend on my phone and I always feel guilty, right? I know I got to do it, but you got to, you know, say, oh, this, this system works, right? So let's do one more example, do Dave Ramsey, right? It's like, this book will help you get out of debt so that you can experience the freedom of a debt-free lifestyle by following Dave Ramsey's six baby steps, right? Boom, but, that's it, yep. He, yeah. He obviously has it better, that's off the top of my head, but millions of people have bought that book and yes. it, it works, right? People really do follow his system, they really do get out of debt and they really do live that debt-free lifestyle, right? You call his radio show and you're like, freedom! <laughs> right, because that's the promise and they've experienced it and he validated it. He didn't invent this framework out of the blue, he worked with people to prove that they could get there by following those six steps or whatever it is. And I would say another tip is try to validate and explore and articulate your idea in some sort of short form first before you get going too hot and heavy on your book here. So for example, I'm reading Perennial Seller. I'm a little late to the game here, but Ryan Holiday has a book called Perennial Seller. And I actually have a direct quote from the book. A book should be an article before it's a book and a dinner conversation before it's an article. See how things go before going all in. 
I could not agree more. That's exactly what I did with my book. I had with the target audience multiple conversations about courtship and what was working, what was not working and their frustrations. And I really got a good understanding. And I practiced my pitch of my idea. And then I wrote the blog post, a million people read it. And then the book came out of the blog post and it was getting honed and refined by the audience that whole time. Exactly. And you were building a platform. You were getting in front of the right readers before the book was going to come out. They already are primed to want that book because they already are listening to what you have to say. They're intrigued by your story. They want to think differently. They want to go deeper. And that's what a book can do. It can go deeper on what you test out in smaller forms. There's only so deep you can go in an article. And we'll have a link. You've got a worksheet to help people follow that template, right? So we'll have a link to that worksheet in the show notes. I also have a worksheet, but it's for novelists. So to find the like core, most interesting element of your novel, because that's a real trick, right? Is the most interesting thing the setting? Is the most interesting thing the protagonist? Is it the antagonist? And I basically have different recipes in the pitch worksheet. You're going to do it for each one, right? So you're going to do one for the setting. You're going to do one for the protagonist. You're going to, and at the end, you'll be like, oh, this one's the best. <laughs> As James Rubart says, it's hard to read the label when you're standing inside the bottle. And a lot of novelists are like, everything in my book is great. <laughs> Let me tell you about everything in my book. It's like, there's so much there and, and figuring out what the one most interesting element is. What's the pointiest bit that will you put at the edge of that hook uh, really helps. That sounds great. Okay, so we've talked about the title, we've talked about the hook, we've talked about platform and uh, launch plan, and we've talked about comps, uh, but we're not done yet, right? And another big part is the bio, right? Where you're, you know, Don't you just copy and paste the bio off your website? What do you put here? Oh boy, this is where you're trying to convince them why this author, remember? We've got why this book, why now, and why this author. So there's that's going to be dribbled throughout because the platform is going to be some indication of why this author. But that bio, you need to frame the bio to indicate why you are the perfect author of this book, not just any book. You might have great credentials that would help you be, I don't know, a doula, but you're writing a book about uh, screen time. So you need to figure out what is it about your life that positions you uniquely as the ideal author of this book. And you are going to put things like your bylines, places you've been published, other books you've been published. Maybe you've been in a compilation of other things. And you really do want to craft this bio custom for this book because you are a complex person. There are many facets, right? You're, you're a son or your daughter. Maybe you're a husband or a wife. Maybe you're also a parent. Right. You're also perhaps a boss or a pastor or, or a nurse. Right. You have maybe a dozen, two dozen identities that are all true. Right. The fact that you're a wife doesn't also discount the fact that you're a mother. Right. You're, you're both of those things. But it takes a little bit of thinking to think which of the aspects of my identity grant credibility for this particular topic in this particular book. And obviously they're going to get to know you more over time, but you have to find what's that one most interesting or most credible element of my identity. And it could be some training that you've had. It could be your education. It could be your story, your life story. You've lived out and proven this. It could be a coaching program that you do that gives evidence that your framework or your process actually produces fruit. And you can you could list that as well. So absolutely, you want to emphasize what makes sense for this book. Yeah. And for fiction, it's a little bit different because your credibility is a little bit different. So it's like, you don't have to be Amish to write an Amish story. I would say for novelists, it's more about here are the evidences that I'm a good writer, that my stories 
are fun to read, right? That, that they're fast paced. And so awards that you've won or other kind of proofs of good writing are more important for fiction than for nonfiction. It's more about like, here's are my credentials. Here's my life story. Like you know, I struggled with screen time. I was on the computer all day and, and then I overcame it and I helped my kids overcome it. And now I'm sharing you that story, right? Maybe you don't have credentials that you graduated from screen time reduction university, but it doesn't matter, right? Cause you have something. So what would you say for novelists? What should they put here? If you have nothing, if you're a first-time novelist, then they don't expect you to have written any other books. But if you have been vetted by another editor through a literary journal, or like you said, you've won an award or a contest because you submitted a short story to it, or you've been shortlisted for an award, that's going to be impressive. That says, oh, another editor and another audience has been reading this person's work and found it worthy of attention. And so if you happen to do that, well, you could start doing it now. These things take a long time. In the literary world, at least, it takes a long time for these journals and magazines to make their decisions. So that might be an interesting thing to do and start now. Another thing you could do is if you are working on some sort of just online presence with a website, and I know you often emphasize writing short stories as maybe a lead magnet to get somebody on your email list, if you can show that that's like going like hotcakes, people are responding, you can screenshot people saying superlative things about it, that too would be some evidence that could be really interesting to them. So that'd be for fiction. Whereas nonfiction, I think getting your ideas out in article form, opinion pieces, essays, and articles in different forms, both at your own website, but also vetted by other publications would be great as well. It really does make a difference. And if you can say, I've had 10,000 people read my short stories and sign up on my email list to read my short stories, that's going to make a publisher book. Wow. This person has an audience of people who've read their fiction and they're ready to go, especially if the short stories are related or in the same story world. That uh, really is an evidence that your writing is good. So then the next section, endorsements are key, especially for nonfiction, but also for fiction. And this is actually one of the sections I really liked looking through as an agent because I found this really helpful. So a good endorsement list breaks the endorsements into several different categories. So here are the people who've already agreed to endorse the book. Here are people I'm friends with, but I haven't talked to it. And then here's my like wish list. Can you introduce me to James Dobson or whatever? So what's your approach to the endorsement section? I mean, you just nailed it. Because the publisher, if it gets picked up, will have their own connections. That's happened to me. That they were, I, I brought people to the table, and then they brought people to the table. And one of my clients was able to leverage his relationship and then his publisher or his agent. And sometimes your agent's like, oh, I know this guy. He's, he's in my agency. <laughs> exactly. So, so I think including that, like if you don't know people, then that can be a possibility. You might even look at that if you're targeting an agent in particular agency, you might look to see their list and you might even just add that. And that shows you've done your homework and you know a little bit more. And you would, of course, change that if you're pitching to a different agency so that you're not yeah, having that confusion about who you're talking to. Make the bait fit the fish. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's good. Yeah. And I think the problem some people are going to feel right now while they're listening is I don't know anybody famous. What would you tell them to do? We have several episodes on this on my other podcast, Novel Marketing, but you need to start doing the work to meet people. This is where you go to conferences. It's the same advice I give my toddlers. If you want to make a friend, you got to be a friend, right? Be nice to the other kids in class. And it's the same thing. And this is, I think, for a lot of authors, one of the harder parts because they've been at home. They've been hiding. They've been scared. They don't want to be out there and they don't want to be seen. And the endorsement list is evidence that you've done the work to make the connections and that you've earned the respect of your peers. 
this because this is important. Do your peers respect you? Do you have peers? Do you even know who your peers are? And this can be a, a challenge because it's in some ways a different game, right? There's the game of getting good at writing. And then there's the game of being seen as being a good writer. And there's overlap for sure, right? If you're a good writer, it helps. But if no one's ever read your writing, if you've never met another author in your life, it's a real challenge to get these endorsements. And it's a real challenge to sell your book because people need to know who you are. They need to have heard of you. So conferences, obviously, is the easiest way or the classic way. The new way, I would say, is joining more and more of these online communities, places like authormedia.social. And I know you've got a program as well where people are interacting, right? They're on a Zoom call with each other every week or every month, and they get to know each other that way. In some ways, that's more efficient because you're not spending thousands of dollars on plane tickets flying all over the country. And I love what you just said, Thomas, that not only are there the people that where you hope to maybe meet somebody uh, who's higher up than you, but also there's the peers. That was really a good distinction. And I think we forget that. Maybe there's that rising together, the rising tide lifts all ships sense that you don't know that maybe at the time you're meeting somebody. And then later, this becomes a relationship. You don't know. And you, so just be nice to everybody yeah. uh, and have fun finding interest in everybody because these relationships may lead to something really neat. I was a part of two major online organizations early on. One of them doesn't even exist anymore. But those relationships continued. These people would be very well known to your listeners. And I can say I'm friends with them because of making those relationships early when we were all nobodies. It's kind of like a graduating class. Yeah. Right? The, uh, the, the authors that you meet at the early conferences, you're all nobodies together. It's kind of like we're all seniors together graduating from college or from high school. And so if you're a jerk to that new author who just showed up, that new author may be a, on a rocket to success, right? Yes. <laughs> to be kind to the new guys because some of them are, may outsell you very quickly. Yes. And I would say here's like a little tiny thing I will mention. If you are at a conference... And they say, do you have any questions? So you don't want to be hogging the room and you don't want to use it as a way to show that you know more than they do or that you're trying to show off that you're famous. And anyway, take notes and think of a legitimate question that you legitimately have. Like, don't even make up the fact that you know the answer to the question. Like, are you aware that my book is the greatest book that's ever been written? (laughs) Don't do that. But when it comes time to ask questions... Raise your hand and ask a question and they can put the face with the question and they're grateful. They shows you were listening and you're indicating interest in what they had to say, not just like trying to get close to them. Then if you go up afterwards and you'd want to ask a follow up to that or something, you can. Again, you're not at all pushing them, handing, here's my business card. Here's my proposal. You're just trying to make that connection. And just in case it becomes an interesting conversation that could jog their memory. And then if you do query them later, maybe they'll remember, oh, you asked that question during the session. And all the other students in the class all turned to look at you. They all saw you and they are now associating you with that question. And maybe they had a similar question or they know a little bit more about you because you asked the question. And now they have something to talk to you about. Here's the deal. Everyone else at a writer's conference is just as shy as you are. Yes, there's the five outgoing bubbly people, but everybody else is an introverted writer. <laughs> so <laughs> you're all in the same boat together. <laughs> so you will stand out merely by raising your hand to ask a question. Yeah. Yes. yes. And if you're the first one to ask a question, you're really doing a service to yeah. the speaker because everyone wants to be the second person to ask a question. So we've hit almost every section. Sample chapters. I'll just say here, when you write the sample chapters, and this is something to think about overall, when you're crafting your 
book proposal. Every element that you work on, what you think you're done with it, but then the next element gives you a thought that makes you go back to the earlier version. And when you write that sample chapter, the first one, that becomes a prototype for the future ones. Now you're laying the groundwork. You write the second chapter, you realize, no, I want to change the prototype. I need to put this kind of element in there. Everything keeps influencing something else. So just be open to that evolution of this document. That would be a big recommendation or a tip. It's just like, don't feel like you've locked, like once you've finished it, you lock it down. Let it be the dynamic document that it is. Until you send it out, it can keep changing and evolving to reflect your own changing and evolving ideas as you hone in and get that absolute clarity and get the right, the articulation of that idea down and lock it in. Yeah, I love that. And I would say this is the last thing you put in your proposal because that sample chapter is going to be living in your document, right? Your book, if you're using Scrivener, it's living there and you're going to keep tweaking it, keep tweaking it. So save yourself the hassle and just say, okay, I'll paste this in later rather than like, oh, then you paste it in again. Because what you don't want to do is where you start making all these tweaks to the version in your proposal and you're making separate tweaks to the version in your Word doc or your Scrivener doc or your Atticus doc. Then you have to merge them later. That (laughs) you're making extra work for yourself. It's such a pain. Yeah, yeah. Formatting. Right. The formatting is so important. I'm just going to add one little tiny thing that's so small, but people have asked me this time and again. The sample chapters should be double-spaced, one-inch margins, Times New Roman, or some sort of standard font. And actually, the whole proposal should be standard font. But some of the earlier sections don't have to be double-spaced. They could be like 1.5. Would you agree, having viewed many of them? Yeah. And people are like, can I squish it down and have it be single-spaced in the sample chapters? No, it has to be double-spaced. So the final section really to talk about is the table of contents, which for Mm -hmm. fiction, it's not all that important, I would say. Uh, But for nonfiction, I will say this is probably the third or fourth thing I would look at as an agent before I went to the sample chapters I'd look at the table of contents. Because for me, this was really important to know, have you structured the book in a good way? Are you doing a good job pitching the idea early? So personally, the way I like to see it, the early chapters are why chapters, the later chapters are how chapters. Obviously, that's oversimplified and doesn't fit for every book. But I want to know that you have some kind of good structure, right? Problem, cause, solution or something. And the annotated table of contents often shows that really clearly. And one tip I have here is that you we talked a lot about creating a good title for the book. And chances are you already know that. You know you need a good title. But do you know that it, you also have to have good titles for chapters? Your chapters need names, need to be sales pitches for that chapter. Right? You need to convince somebody This chapter is worth 20 minutes of your life that you'll never get back. You live the rest of your life and die and never get back to 20 minutes you spent reading this chapter. So it's worth that investment. (laughs) So you need to add a little sizzle to your chapter titles. 100%. Yes. And this is where people who are writing nonfiction books, it blows their mind when they're working on the proposal. They realize somebody just told them you don't have to write the entire book, only the three sample chapters, but you actually do need to develop the whole book without writing it. And that can be really mind-blowing to people who are like a pantser in in terms of nonfiction. They write their way into an idea. Well, now you're telling them basically you need need to be a nonfiction plotter. You need to outline your idea and think it through in the order. What's the sequence that this reader is going to need this information? And it is so hard for pantser-type personalities to do this work. It is work. And let, let me just define, when she says pants, we're talking about people who write by the right seat, by of, the the seat of their pants. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry. If you're not familiar with the terminology, it can be a little disconcerting. So, no, I think this process, the developing the book 
it is one of the most valuable reasons to create a book proposal. Even if you go on to self-publish, you've done the work, you've developed the idea, you, and each one of the chapters with the excellent, compelling t- uh, chapter titles is going to have that chapter summary that you mentioned in the annotated table of contents, or if you just want to call it chapter summaries, you can, but you need to summarize what's going in there and the different elements and the takeaways for that chapter. And that's going to help you. You've just done a lot of work and you're going to save yourself a lot of time. And this is where you're actually kind of writing the book without writing the book. You're developing the book. And this is where it can really help to have people that you're talking with about the ideas, bouncing them off of, it might help to have a coach or somebody that you're thinking it through with to help you develop those ideas so that you feel like, okay, I mapped it out in the order that makes sense. Each chapter has its own reason for being, and I'm not overlapping ideas. Like, how is this one distinct from that one? And you're not married to this table of contents. It'll change, but it's got to be compelling. Like, you have to have a good start here. And what you're saying about having another set of eyes is really key, right? You don't want to be getting your first feedback from the agent who's now rejected you. (laughs) And you're like, oh, now I can't pitch this agent again, this book, because they've already rejected this book. And so I know you offer coaching, right? You look over people's proposals and you give them feedback. Tell us a little bit about what you offer. Well, anybody wants to just explore all the things that I offer, I have a page. It's annkroker.com slash everything. And if you go to the everything page, you'll see all the ways you can work with me, both free and paid. And, And it starts with the free and works your way down. So at the top, you'll have that craft your books, big idea. And that's where you'll find the template. And that is a three-day evergreen course you can go through, a challenge that you can go through to try to hone in on that big idea. But then, yes, if you scroll, keep scrolling down, you can find more about the platform membership, but also the book proposal program. And I do work with people who want to get that kind of close attention, but I also have recorded trainings that walk them through with a template that is a proven template and has sold a lot of books for my clients. And so I walk through each of these elements and the order that I think is maybe the most effective to go through it with showing you where to look for all the different little pieces you might need to to put them together. And just in case you can't spell annkroker.com, don't worry, just go to christianpublishingshow.com. In the show notes, (laughs) we'll have links both to my pitch worksheet and craft your big idea template. And Groker, thank you so much for joining us today on the Christian Publishing Show. Thanks for having me. It was a treat. Our featured patron is Deborah Ramey, author of Bridges, facing an empty nest for the first time since the death of her husband, Tess Everett immerses herself in volunteer work for the Winterset Public Parks, home of the famous covered bridges. But when a former resident, W. McCree, Shows up with paintbrushes, sparks fly. J.W. was once married to Tess's late friend Char. And as their relationship grows, Tess and J.W. must discover if what they have together is worth rearranging their entire lives for and whether they can build bridges that will mend broken relationships. Deborah Rainey, thank you so much for being a patron of the podcast. Thank you for your financial support that helps keep this podcast coming every month. If you would like to become a patron to support the show like Deborah, you can do that at christianpublishingshow.com. The Christian Publishing Show is a production of Author Media. This episode's audio was edited by William Umstadt. The producer is Lori Christine, and I'm Thomas Umstadt Jr., your host. To find the blog post version of this episode, visit christianpublishingshow.com slash 127. Thank you for listening, and live long and prosper.